0: So last week, as I mentioned, season of Lent began, and we started a series on the spiritual disciplines. I began the series with this call to discipleship that Jesus gave in the Gospels, this effective word from Christ that builds the church, come, Jesus says, follow me. We talked about how the church is a gathering of the called out ones. Indeed, that is, ac- is exactly what the word church means. Ecclesia, the Greek word for church, it means a gathering of the called out ones. But we also learned that the call out is only the first step for the church, the second step is to enter a discipleship relationship with Jesus. We talked last week about how this is very much like an apprenticeship relationship. Apprentices stick beside their teacher. They do as their teacher does. And one day, they become the kind of people that are capable of carrying on the work of their teacher. This is what it means to be a disciple. The church has been called out of the world into a discipling relationship with Jesus. Together, we are learning from him. to live life as it was meant to be lived in God's kingdom called to be with Jesus called to become like Jesus called to carry on the work of Jesus that's who we are that's who we are as a body of disciples and that's what we're aiming for together this Lent now in order to become like Jesus we can't just try to emulate Jesus in the moment We will never be as merciful as Jesus, as consistently as Jesus, or as just as Jesus, as consistently as Jesus, because becoming like Jesus is nearly impossible through willpower alone. The key to becoming like Jesus, as many saints throughout the ages have figured out, is that you have to realize that discipleship with Jesus is not a trying program, but a training program program. This principle is easy to understand, I think. And I mentioned this last week, but I'd like to uh, bring this to mind again before we launch into the first uh, spiritual discipline. For instance, if you want to play the piano like Glenn Gould, you can't just listen to him play box variations on YouTube and then sit down at the piano and expect to be able to play just like Glenn Gould. You need to practice. Submit yourself to the authority of a teacher. Become an apprentice. Play scales, a lot of them, for a long time. Master them. Master proper fingering on the keyboard. And then one day, after training, you'll be able to sit down and play the piano like Glenn Gould. Well, maybe not exactly like him because he was exceptional, but you'll be able to play better than you were before and perhaps some of the basic Bach pieces you'll be able to play. The same principle goes for sports. If you want to run a marathon, you have to train. You can't go from couch to 42K in an afternoon. Your body will break down. You will not be healthy. Start with three kilometers. Work your way up to 10 kilometers. Find a running partner, someone who can train with you and keep you accountable, and slowly you'll become capable of 20, 30, 40 kilometers. Becoming like Jesus is a little bit like this. I love how John Ortberg puts it. Here's what he says. The need for preparation or training does not stop when it comes to learning the art of forgiveness or joy or courage. In other words, it applies to a healthy and vibrant spiritual life just as it does to a physical and intellectual activity. Learning to think, feel, and act like Jesus is as least is at least as demanding as learning to run a marathon or play the piano. In other words, in order if the goal is to become like Jesus, which is the goal of every disciple to become like their master, then we need to train with Jesus and allow him to school us in the practices that will lead us towards greater maturity in him. I recognize that this is new language. For some of us reformed folks but this has been uh, a big part of um, the last 20 years of, of evangelicals uh, coming to a greater awareness of the spiritual disciplines that have been a big part of church history for centuries so this is where the spiritual disciplines come in let me define a few terms discipline what is a discipline Here's John Ortberg's definition. A discipline, any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot now do by direct effort. So, example, piano example again. Today, I can play scales on the piano. Tomorrow, I can play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Two years from now, after doing all that work, I'll be able to do something I'm not capable of doing today which is play something that's much more difficult, right? So that's how a discipline works. It's something you can do today that will help you do something in the future that you're not currently capable of doing now. So what is a spiritual discipline? Once again, John Ortberg's definition is good. A spiritual discipline is any activity that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. For example, Jesus modeled radical forgiveness. He forgave the very people who were nailing him to the cross and mocking him as he died. That is very hard to do. If you've ever been wronged, you know how hard it is to forgive. But but is there any activity or practice that I am capable of today that will help me grow that direction tomorrow? Maybe I can't forgive my enemies today, but maybe I can start meditating on the Lord's prayer today. That, that petition, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Maybe I can commit to praying it every day. Or maybe I can memorize the passage where Jesus tells his disciples to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Maybe I need to invite an accountability partner into my struggle of forgiveness. And so one day, I'll grow in my capacity to forgive as Jesus forgave. You see how this works. The spiritual disciplines are the scales of the Christian life. They are the practices we can do today that will help us live like Christ in the future. Now, there are a lot of caveats and other points I should make regarding the spiritual disciplines. I'll only make one because I want to dive into our first one and give it enough time. The first caveat here is this. Very important. Practicing spiritual disciplines is not about proving ourselves to God or our peers. You don't get extra credit points in heaven or on earth by doing lots of disciplines, okay? The point is to become more like Jesus over time. The point is not to get into heaven. We don't need to practice the spiritual disciplines in order to become a disciple. The call is effective. Jesus calls us where we are. Boom, we become a part of him. Okay, but as we want to grow up into our identity in Christ, the spiritual disciplines become very important for that process. But it's not about getting ourselves into heaven. Okay, so with that long introduction complete, Let's explore our first discipline, which is meditation. I'd like to read a few passages today um, to get us thinking about this. Start with Psalm number one. And you can stay seated today to receive God's word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. But not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We'll move to the New Testament. And Anna Marie, I'm just going to go to the passage in Colossians. Okay, so our our second reading. Oh, man. Colossians chapter 3. There we go. Starting at verse, I'm going to start at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, in order to uh, graduate from seminary, I had to jump through a lot of hoops. I had to pass oral exams, I had to submit sermons and pass sermon exams, I had to make my way through an extensive psychological evaluation process. In addition to all these things, I also had to pass a Bible knowledge exam. I guess the seminary wanted to make sure that her students could wield the sword of the Spirit with some degree of accuracy. Fair enough. The problem with the Bible knowledge exam, from my perspective, is that it was more of a Bible trivia exam than it was a Bible knowledge exam. The test was done online, and it was multiple choice. Here's a sampling of some of the questions we were asked. What was the name of Moses' father-in-law? Anybody? Jethro. Jethro. Okay, you guys. Some of you would have done well on that one. On what mountain did Elijah meet with God? Now, we just studied this one. Anybody? Horeb, yeah. Then we get a passage from the Bible like this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And the question would be, is this quote found in Isaiah 11, 42, 60, or 61? Anybody? No, if you went to seminary, you can't answer, okay? Anybody? 61 is the right answer, I think. Someone can check. Thankfully, you were allowed to take the exam multiple times, Which was good since many of us failed on our first attempt. Looking back on the experience, sometimes I wonder about the value of this Bible knowledge exam. Studying Greek and Hebrew in the classroom, that was valuable. Studying Paul's letters, that was valuable too. Really digging in. Those classes helped me grow in knowledge and in my love for God and in his word. But that multiple-choice Bible knowledge exam, did it help me out? Did it help me become a better disciple of Jesus? In his classic book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster argues that the desperate need of our time is not more intelligence, but depth of character. What we need most crucially today is not communities of Christians who can pass the Bible trivia exam, but communities of Christians who are letting the words of Christ dwell in them richly so that they may be saturated in the Lord's will, like Christ was saturated in the Lord's will. We don't know much about Jesus' Bible meditation routine. We know he was raised in a God-fearing home with God-fearing parents. We know that God-fearing parents in Jesus today, Jesus day were, supposed to write the commands of the Lord on the door frames of their houses. They were supposed to impress them upon their children, talk about them early in the morning when they woke up and before they went to sleep at night. As they were going about their day, they were to talk about and meditate upon the law. Jesus grew up in a home like that. We know that many Jews in Jesus' day had the entire Torah memorized. That's the first five books of the Bible. We know that the religious feasts and festivals featured many retellings of the old story of God, how God had rescued his people from Egypt. And while they'd get together, they'd hear the law read and read. And we know that one day, instead of returning to Nazareth with his parents, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. He was found in the temple. He wanted to be where his father's word was read and discussed. Jesus quoted the Old Testament extensively in his ministry he used it to shield himself from the flaming arrows of the evil one he called upon it in order to speak truth when confronted with the the traps of the pharisees we have to remember that it wasn't like jesus was walking around with an niv in his back pocket okay people didn't have little pocket side bibles they didn't even have big bibles they had scrolls and they were very expensive and those were only found in certain places all this was in jesus memory he didn't go to google every time the pharisees lobbed a question at him let me check the old testament i'll google a few uh, keywords and see what passages pop up that's what most of us do right the word was in him it was part of his body part of his mind part of his soul. How did it get in there? Well, he was God, you might say. It just kind of was part of the package, I suppose. And maybe that's true to an extent. But you have to remember that Jesus wasn't quoting the Torah as a six-month-old baby. He had to learn to speak. He had to learn with the other children of his day about who God was and what it looks like to live a life that pleases God. Jesus was fully human. Jesus didn't start his ministry officially till he was about 30 years old. We don't know exactly what he did during his 20s, but what we, de- what we see displayed in the Gospels tells us that he spent a lot of his 20s meditating upon God's word. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. There are two Hebrew words for meditate in the Old Testament, haggah and siha. Hagah is the word used in Psalm 1. It means to mutter, to murmur, to repeat. When I was in Israel uh, last year and I was staying at a kibbutz, um, which is an Orthodox Jewish community, a farming community, we stayed at a hotel that they ran. I would wake up. When I woke up early in the morning and I walked around this hotel, I saw Orthodox Jews, uh, multiple, uh, you know, in various places on couches with their, with their Old Testament open. And they were rocking and they were muttering the text they were repeating it over and over and over again. They were memorizing. They were haggah, the, the, the Torah. To haggah is to dwell with a particular text, to let the words roll over your tongue again and again. Blessed is the one who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose delight is the law of the Lord. Repeating, repeating, memorizing, Getting it to move from your head to your heart. The goal of Haggah is to, to, to have them sink in. Siha is similar to Haggah, but it carries slightly different connotations. To Siha is to muse over, to ponder, to reflect upon. This is about savoring and, and enjoying and taking a look from different angles. It's like when you go out to eat, and you have some fine food, and, and you take a bite, and you savor it. You notice all the flavors that are coming out. You don't rush on to the next bite. You finish. Maybe you take a nice drink of, of wine or something, and then you enjoy that for a while, and then you cut another little piece, and you, you savor it, and you Talk to your friends. Isn't this wonderful? What a nice little piece of fish I have here. Maybe not fish because it's hard to get a good piece of fish. But something, something, you know, just really tasty. And you're and you're sharing and you're talking about it. It becomes enjoyable to talk about the taste that you're experiencing. That's what siha is like. In Psalm 119, the psalmist Sihah's God's law. I have hidden your word in my heart. That I might not sin against you. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. That last line, I consider your ways, that's, highlights the line before. To to see how is to consider, to ruminate upon, to reflect. Whatever the difference in nuance, the goal of meditation in the Old Testament, the goals of meditation in the Old Testament are the same. The goal is a deeper love of the Lord and a closer walk with the Lord through a thorough saturation in His Word. Fundamental to this is two things first, a genuine love for God and a genuine desire to commune with Him. And secondly, a realization that his word to us is not a text to be objectified, but a love letter to be savored. Some of you lived in the days when you still sent physical letters and and they mean something very important. Perhaps you immigrated to this country not knowing if you'd ever see your parents again. So when you arrived, you sent a letter to your parents. And when they received it, you just know that they paraded it around the village, holding it close to their chest and they read it out loud to all their neighbors and friends and they just cherished every word. Not because it was, you know, just... Oh, it, 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 because it came from you. It came from the, lover, the one that they so loved. The content of the letter was precious because it came from the beloved. Now imagine instead of savoring those words... Uh, Because you love your beloved you started analyzing the penmanship and the grammatical structure of the letter Such study can be fruitful indeed study itself can be a spiritual discipline, too But the goal of meditation is not to get lost in the details The goal is to have an encounter with God himself through the word uh, that graciously reveals his character and plan The fact that Biblical meditation is scripture-based is really important, I think. This point contrasts uh, Biblical meditation from other Eastern forms of meditation. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, meditation is all the rage these days. Many people are seeking opportunities to detox from social media, to clear the mind, Secular professors of well-being are assigning meditation in their coursework to their students. Headspace, which is a meditation app, was uh, um, created by a Buddhist monk turned entrepreneur. It has 31 million users worldwide. In Eastern forms of meditation, the goal is to clear the mind, to detach from the world, there's an emphasis on self-forgetfulness, becoming one with the universe. Through this process, it is believed, you get insight into yourself and mastery over your emotions, and then you can experience peace within. Now, I don't want to slam Eastern forms of meditation. I've never tried it, and I don't know much about it. And if people all over the world are turning it, to try, turning to it to try to get peace, I think Christians need to take notice because this is a big conversation starter. Tell me why you meditate. What does it do to you? I'll, sh- I'll show you what, how I meditate and what it means to me. This is important to see what's going on and to engage it. But for our purposes today, it's important to see that there's a big difference between biblical meditation and Eastern meditation. The goal of Eastern styles of meditation is to detach from the world the goal of Christian meditation is to step back from the world in order to attach to God and to enjoy loving community, communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit using His Word. Another crucial thing to understand about biblical meditation is that, is that a secondary goal, um, which is basically extension of the first goal, is obedience. We see this coming through in Psalm 119, clearly. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, when we meditate and savor God's word, the content makes a home in our minds and hearts. And once inside, the Spirit can use it to protect us and to change us. And we see this so clearly in the life of Christ. Notice how Jesus stood firm against temptation in the wilderness. He simply quoted the scriptures. He had Deuteronomy in his mind and his heart. He had hidden God's word inside his heart. And when the devil came with these tricky little, you know, traps and temptations, he could simply say, Nuh-uh, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Brittany shared a story with me on Friday that illustrates this uh, point nicely, and I share it today with um, her permission. So in our house, after breakfast, we go through a routine we call morning time. It's basically family devotions. One piece of morning time involves memorizing scripture texts are chosen seasonally and at this time Brittany and our children are memorizing Philippians 4 which we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition and so on. I'm not memorizing it because I'm always at work by the time they do morning time. I wish I was. I should stay. Anyway, that's what they're memorizing. So every day since Christmas, Brittany and our children have been meditating on this text, repeating the words. Brittany has even created actions that the kids do to help them memorize. Well, last week, after morning time, Brittany took our playful children to Playfair Park. Playfair Park, if you've been there, is known for its rhododendron forest, giant rhododendrons. They're like the size of trees. They're huge and beautiful. And in about a month, Playfair Park is going to be the most beautiful place in Victoria. You should go check it out. Now our children love this rhododendron forest. They love it because they 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 love it not because they love the flowers, but because they like to hang from the rhododendrons like monkeys. And then they like to do this thing that they call tree transfer which is basically climbing up one big rhododendron branch and then jumping to another rhododendron tree and then climbing down the other side. Tree transfer. Sometimes I wonder if we should let our children climb these ancient, beautiful plants. But they look strong enough, and there's a lot of them, so what's the harm, right? No signs. Anyway. Well, this past week our children were accosted by a local horticulturalist while swinging from the trees like monkeys. This woman was livid, and she lost it on our children. My poor children were scared to death, near tears. Our mom lets us do this, they said. Brittany was far enough away to witness the encounter, but not close enough to stop it. But when she saw this this woman yelling at her children, her mama bear instincts kicked in. And uh, you guys don't know Brittany quite the way I know Brittany. (laughs) But I get a little nervous sometimes, okay? But as she was storming over to intervene, a word from Philippians 4 popped into her head, out of her heart. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Weeks of memorization, right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So in that moment, Brittany made a decision to put on that verse with this very angry horticulturalist. Do you see how this works? When the scriptures get into us, the spirit can pull them into our minds at the appropriate times. They can be useful in very crucial moments, moments of temptation, moments where we want to react with anger and we could be reacting with gentleness or humility. This is the power of training, right? Getting something into you so that when you're on the spot in a moment of crisis, you can act with all that training behind you and you can show up in a way that is Christ-like. Wow. It's It's so powerful. So meditating on Scripture in order to commune with God this is so essential. To my memory, no Christian in history really has ever made any progress in discipleship without incorporating some, sort, some form of Bible meditation into their routine. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is the means through which God transforms our minds and our hearts. And as we saturate ourselves and the word of the Lord, we become more and more like Christ in the moments where that is needed. So how do we do it? How do we meditate? What needs to take place? I'll finish with some thoughts on that. I'd like to say that I'm an expert, but I am not. I'm more skilled in the discipline of study than I am in meditation. This is a growth area for me one that I'm taking on for Lent. Since hurry is the enemy of meditation, time and space need to be set aside for this practice. You need somewhere to retreat to. It doesn't have to be, like, far, but a room where you can go in, shut the door, and trust that, you know, no one's going to interrupt you. The phone can't be on, lest you hear one of those dreaded dings. And it just takes your attention to whatever's going on on your phone. Don't make quantity of Scripture the goal. Like, oh, today i got to read three chapters. Quick, let's speed read as fast as possible. So, poof, on to the next thing. Right? Done my Scripture reading. Done. No, no. Quantity is not the goal. It's settling in. Quantity. If you read five verses and you you know and you get to the third verse and something there just jumps off the page ponder it memorize it repeat it again and again savor it like you would a bite of a bite of you know nice food talk about it let it lead you into prayer lord what do you have for me in this word or phrase When I'm doing well at meditation, it's usually because I've chosen a particular book to read and I have a pen and paper beside me. I read and then I write. I read and then I write. I write what really stands out to me and then I chew on that. I read it a few more times and then I start journaling prayers based on what I've, I've written. Remember the goal of meditation is not trying to master the text, but to have the text get inside and to go deep, and to draw us closer to God. You may want to study something deeper on another occasion. That's fine. Study is a spiritual discipline that is connected to meditation. Study is also very important. That's different, though. But there are no hard and fast rules, really, to follow with meditation on Scripture. Literally creating time for it and space for it is all that is needed. And then all you need to do is give yourself the freedom to let the Spirit lead you, as you ponder the love letter that God has given us. A good place to go this Lent if you're looking for, if this is a practice you're looking to put on, perhaps would be the passion narratives at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would just choose one. And over the next couple weeks, just go really slowly through those last chapters of Jesus' life, as he prepares for the cross. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the book of John, and I'm going to go slowly through the last chapters. I want to conclude this sermon by offering um, actually some space for meditation. Often at the end of sermons, we just kind of rush into a song response, and then a blessing, and then, woof, we're all gone. And sometimes I wonder if maybe we couldn't do some silent reflection here in this space. And so instead of uh, responding with a song response, we're going to have a song played for us. There's a musician that I love who makes songs based on scripture. If you can find someone who just writes songs based on scripture, they are the best. And uh, the song uh, comes from Matthew 11, and I'll read it. And then we are going to meditate together on this song. When the song is finished, we're going to sit in silence for a few minutes and just rest together to muse over the words that God has for us today and simply rest in God's presence. So here's the verse. Hear God's word for you today. Come to me,